everyone, and welcome back to Bedtime Stories for Paddlers. If you paddled this podcast before, thanks for editing out again. If it's your first time, grab a brew and get ready to be taken on a journey you won't forget. On this podcast, we feature river stories from artists, kayakers, river guides, canoeists, swiftwater rescue pros, and stand-up paddleboarders. Here is a listen back to May 11th, 2020. My guest is mentor, friend, and hero in the whitewater community. I'm honored to have a swiftwater rescue specialist, C1 boater extraordinaire, and whitewater gear innovator, Charlie Walbridge, on Bedtime Stories for Paddlers. Together, we will hear about Charlie's first boating experiences, college life, stories of swims, people he boated with, and how whitewater paddling and swiftwater rescue shaped his life and career. So now, let's hear it from the legend himself. I think we got you now. We got all the yeah, I think so. We got all the glitches worked out. Welcome, Charlie. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing doing pretty good. You know, a little bored with all this uh, with all this uh, coronavirus stuff. Yeah, I can't. Uh... I can't imagine why you're bored. I've, I've yeah, been bored. Myself. I'm lucky, you know, I've been, there are a few people that I've been able to get out with and we run shuttle. Either we get Sandy to run shuttle for us or uh, we uh, use a pickup truck and I'm going to close my office door. Hang on. Okay. How is Sandy doing? Oh, she's doing it. She's doing good. I mean, she's worried about her mom. Her mom's 87 and. You know, she's in a good neighborhood. She's got people looking after her, but she'd like to go visit. And right now it just doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. You got to do the social distancing thing. And, and I'm glad you're getting out there and, you know, just kind of stretching your wings a little bit on the river and stuff. How's that been going? Oh, you know, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, it's very nice. You know, we, you know, we, you know, we get out on nice days, but it makes you appreciate how much you, miss the entire boating community yeah. because yeah, you know, I've got a, there are a few, there are a few good friends who I hang out with, but I enjoy a lot of people. Yeah. I think all of us are very social, but um, I, I, that's one of the things I'm trying to do here. You know, all of us being quarantined, I felt like there was a need for us to kind of reach out and just talk about river stories if we're not, doing them as much but uh so that's what i'm doing with bedtime stories i'm glad you uh decided to be a guest on here tonight what have you what was the last thing you just paddled recently upper big sandy nice been yep. mostly paddling either the upper big sandy or the uh castleman nice cheat and yak have been really high and i you know nowadays it takes me it takes me a while to work up to a point where i jump on the upper yacht even at a summer level Mm -hmm. what's the uh, upper big sandy running oh it needs it it's six two now we got on it once up in the sevens we've been on it down and down in the uh, mid fives which is lower than i'd done it before but my buddy has a sore shoulder and Mm. he's trying to work back into it did you have and, any you know, this time of year that, you know, it's, just, it's all about, you know, with all that's going on, it's all about getting out. It is about getting out and I haven't gotten out and I'm really aching to get out, but I'm still kind of in the, uh, taking care of the kids role and, uh, 
it's not been good enough for weather to really get them out. They don't have the the gear that I have, you know, to get out in early spring boating. But we're hoping that weather starts clearing up so we can get out. How's Sandy yeah. doing? She running the shuttle. Sandy's running the shuttle. You said, huh? Yeah, she's been running shuttle. It's a little cold for her right now. Yeah, she's not as hardcore as she used to be. Of course, none of us are. Yeah. How long has she been running shuttle for you? Oh, oh, just you know, just a, just a couple of weeks. We came back. We came back in mid March. We we were down south, and it was interesting because when we started coming back from Florida. You know, the coronavirus was like third page news, sort of like, yeah, you know, this thing had happened in China and there are, and there are a couple of cases here and there. And by the time we got back to Morgantown a week later, it was, you know, it was a, it was a full on, you know, major, major emergency. And a week after we were here is when uh, Governor Justice said, you know, shut West Virginia down. And, you know, he was, he's way ahead of a lot of the red states in terms of being proactive, which is, which I think is, which I think has been good. That's good. You got to be proactive and stock up and just, you know, do the social distancing, so much stuff. We all are really uh, aware and know about the, the coronavirus and the unfortunate side effects that it brings, but I'm really interested to, you know, kind of discover a little bit about you and I'd like to, you know, just do a little, little talking about maybe some of the older times that you've had and, you know, what got you into, uh, the whitewater, but I'm interested, you know, where did you grow up, Charlie? When did I grow up? <laughs> no, I hope. where, where, where? I'm the, I was born in New York city. Okay. And, uh, was one of these kids who wasn't sure if there was really dirt underneath all the uh, concrete. I remember going to a construction site and it's like, wow, there's dirt under here. So you were full on just a city boy. City kid. Well, I, both my grandmothers had had places out in the country and we visited there often okay. and we spent our summers down there. So I knew, I knew, I knew a lot of, a lot about what, uh what the country looked like but uh my dad loved the city he was uh very musical he in addition to being an architect he was an amateur actor and singer and just very active in that life okay well what kind of kid were you um growing up i mean did you like were you resourceful or scrappy or inventing stuff or studious or what kind of kid were you I'd say for I'd say for probably, you know, for for the first t ten years or so, I was not doing very well. I was doing badly in school, and I was really uncoordinated and couldn't catch a ball. And it was a time when Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris were going for the home run record, and everybody was mad about baseball, and I couldn't do anything with a baseball. And and there was just a lot a lot of teasing and harassment and and uh my dad and i didn't get along but eventually in for seventh grade i went away to a boarding school and that was really good because it got me out of the city 
because because I was going to a very good private city school, but all everything in the city is so crowded and so cramped. Mm-hmm. I was I was just I was just not comfortable there, and I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And you know, going to school first it was Western Connecticut, and then it was Massachusetts, and going to summer camp. You know that that really that really changed things for me. Was it the Mowgli's summer camp? Mowgli. Was it Mowgli's? Yeah, you know, you know, you know the uh, Walt Disney has absolutely butchered Kipling's Jungle Stories, and he yeah. didn't even <laughs> get the name right. Okay. And the reason we know is because in 1903, when Elizabeth Ford Holt founded Mowgli. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, <clears throat> she wrote Kipling and asked permission to use the name, and he gave her permission. And not only that, he told her how to pronounce it. And we have proof. We have letters signed by Richard Kipling. Wow, that is amazing. So Kipling was involved in the Mowgli's camp that you were involved in that's where that's where it came from that's awesome okay i never got that connection i should have but i didn't yeah and mrs holt founded actually she founded several camps but but uh mowgli is the one that has lasted and uh we've we've gone through some some very rough times it's it's hard it's it's hard to keep something like that going but for me um, I just love being out in the mountains and camping. And of course I was pretty klutzy my, my first couple of years, but when I got to be about 13 or 14, I started to start to find my feet, so to speak. Well, you're, you're, you're probably taller then too, when you're a kid. I mean, how tall are you now? Like six, five, six, six, or I'm six, five, six, five. Okay. I was close. But there's this, you know, what's interesting is the first year I was there, I was with a dorm and I had a hell of a time keeping up. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. Now, when was the first year? Let's set the set the stage here for Mugley's. When was the first year and where is this Mugley's? It's in it's in central New Hampshire. Okay. At the north end of Newfound Lake. And I was 11 in 1959. Okay. And couple of you know I had a hard time keeping up with the dorm the first couple of years and then they held I came back expecting to go to the to the oldest kids dorm the den and graduate and they held me back for a year in Panther and I was really upset so I went and talked to the director and and he said well you know you're really a year older than those kids in den and I and all of a sudden that started to make sense and I said, but why didn't you put me with the younger kids then? And he pulled out a picture of my, of my Aquila dorm, which was the one I was in in 1959, and held it up to me. And he says, Charlie, look at you. You're a head taller than Steve Underwood. And he was the next tallest kid in camp. If I'd have put you down with the two of my kids, you would have been a giant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So you just didn't fit in with everybody else. So they advanced you. Well, you know, having, I was a counselor there for, for eight years and uh, on the board of directors for 15. 
So you start to learn a little bit about how the place is run. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens is you have ages that are just our guidelines for, Mm -hmm. for, for each dorm. There are, there are like six, six dorms and there are about 15 kids in each, but you have these, uh, you have these guidelines, but they work them a little bit. If you get somebody who's really precocious, they may push them ahead. And if they get someone like me, like me, who, uh, who is really big or slow or whatever, mm-hmm. they, they put, they put you in the one that fits you. Gotcha. Well, that's good. That's what they're supposed to do. They're, you know, guidance counselors and they're going to, they're going to help put you where you need to be. So what were some of the things that you did at the Mowgli's, uh, that really kind of inspired you to, you know, adapt yourself more to the river life. Well, it was well, Mowgli was more about mountain, you know, climbing in the White Mountains. Okay. And the first mountain I tried to climb, I ran out of gas and had to be walked off by a counselor mm-hmm. who was who was, uh, you know, I looking back on it, I never saw him again. He was only there that one year, but. And as I was said goodbye to him at the end of the season, because this is an eight-week season. Eight weeks. Okay. And I said, I said goodbye to him. He says, Charlie, I want you to come back next year, and I want you to climb a mountain. Nice. And I wasn't so sure that was a good idea, because the first <laughs> first mountain didn't go so well. But I did come back and, you know, climbed one, and then I sort of got into the sort of gotten the rhythm of it. I knew I could do it and I was really I really loved loved being in the outdoors. They had canoes down at the waterfront and I learned to canoe from a fellow named Roger Farrington who I later met. He's a he's a pretty respectable kayaker, lives in lives in northern Jersey. But Roger taught me how to canoe, but I wasn't really that interested because canoeing always seemed like you know, you're you're paddling all day in the hot sun, and then you and then you camp, and there are these beaches with all this sand. It just it just didn't seem like as much fun as the mountains. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get into whitewater until I went to college. Okay, well, where was college? College was Bucknell University, which uh, which is in central Pennsylvania. I'd really wanted to get into Dartmouth, but I didn't have the grades for it. Mm. So ended up the, ended up there and there wasn't an outing club. So me and my roommate started an outing club, which still exists, although it's now an outdoor program with a paid, with a paid manager and thousands of dollars of equipment. We were just a bunch of guys going out and trying to figure things out, trying to figure out how to rock climb. And my roommate had been a canoe counselor at another camp, a camp in Maine, and I was playing football. And so when the football, spring football was over, I went and uh, went canoeing with him. And I said, wow, this is cool. I mean, great scenery, mm-hmm. and you don't have to carry a pack. <laughs> and, you know, it was a little scary. You know, we went down Penn's Creek, which is a little class one, two, but it was all we needed. I mean, we had, we had many adventures on that two-day trip. Uh, you know, a guy went, 
the guy took his full boat underneath the tree and lost his camera and a lot of other stuff. And of course, no life jackets. Mm-hmm. You know this. You know this is really before, really before, before they were widely used, and we weren't, we weren't that clued into the to the broader. To the, to the to the broader uh, whitewater community but then but then uh, I think it was I think it was my uh, so, uh, my junior year and what was they the went, year they all let's let's see I mean I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm thinking actually that it, you know my junior year was uh, 1970 okay. and I think that that's the year some some of the guys went up to the loyal sock and I didn't go okay but 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 there was a race there that was put on by the Wildwater Boating Club and there was a Penn State outing club and the Wildwater Boating Club which is in Belfont which is a little town just north of State College and so they went up and they saw this race and they said, wow, these people have kayaks. It's so cool. And they got some whitewater programs. And I picked up the whitewater program and paged through it. And it was a listing of clubs and it was Penn State Outing Club, John R. Sweet. Yeah. And it gave an address and I wrote him a letter. Nice. And, and uh, he, uh, because I'm I'm just I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure sure of the timing of all this because I had bought a kayak with uh, the money that I'd earned being a camp counselor, but it was a fiberglass Klepper Trabant, which you know was a it was pretty piggy, but it was one of the boats that I could fit in, mm-hmm. and and uh, I, I really wanted to learn how to use that and. The letter eventually got passed on to John Sweet, and he said, "Come, you know, come on up. We'd be happy to help you get started." Nice. And so we went. So me and a couple of guys went up to the Penn State pool sessions, and sadly, the Penn State Outing Club doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. The university felt there was too much liability. I mean, with all the nonsense they have with their fraternities, I don't know why they're picking on the outing club. I think they what it was is they have an outing program with paid trips, and they consider that competition. I've seen that happen at a couple of other universities. But, any, but anyway, we went up there, and it was amazing. I mean, there were a lot of good boaters there. All doing the pool sessions, all working on the rolls and stuff like that, right? Rolls. They had gates set up. A. Uh, it was there was a lot going on, and there was John Sweet, and Norman Holcomb, and uh, and and Tom Irwin. Norm Norm taught me a lot of stuff about about uh, C ones. I'm talking to him by the side of the pool, and he was impressed that we could roll a kayak. We had learned how to roll a kayak using the AMC Whitewater Handbook, which had these stick drawings that were really hard to figure out. And we're, we're in the pool trying to figure out what's going on and we were coming up, but it wasn't very good. And I get back to my room and my buddy, Jim Love, who I did a lot of my trips with when I was in college, calls me up and says, Charlie, Charlie, I'm looking at these pictures and we're doing it all wrong. And I said, no, no, we can't be doing it wrong. We rolled. Both he and I had been able to get the boat back up. He says, come on over, I'll show you. And so he came over and he showed me and 
what we were doing was kind of a crummy put across roll, mm. which nobody uses, but Jim figured out the screw roll from those pictures. And so we went up to Penn State and rolled. And uh, Norm, Norm Holcomb comes up to me and he says, Charlie, you know, you're awfully big for a kayak. Kayaks are really for women and really small, wimpy men. <laughs> you need a canoe. You okay. see one. And I happen to have one for sale. <laughs> nice. Okay. So Norm well, Holcomb. Buy- Norman Holcomb. Okay. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Holcomb is his younger brother who worked at NOC for, for a great many years. Um, and he's related to Andrew Holcomb, who was pretty noted, pretty noted hot boater. But Norman and Barbara were C2 mixed pair. And, but Norman took some time with me to, to help me, to help me get, get set up and, uh, and work on some strokes. And one time I cornered John Sweet in, in the pool and asked him some questions about the, about the strokes. And he gave me some coaching that took me several months to figure out. And then, uh, Tom Irwin taught me how to roll. Nice. No, I was, I was rolling, but it was really really rough and tom showed me how to how to manage the blade and to flip the paddle over and to come up in a low brace now was john sweet a kayaker or a canoeist you don't know who john sweet is no i know but i've known him as a kayaker i thought john sweet was never a kayaker he wasn't a kayaker okay. john sweet was a sea boater okay my, and my of course apologies. back then I'd say probably nine out of 10 people in the community were, were, were canoeists. Gotcha. And I'd only seen pictures of him. And I thought when I saw those pictures of him, he was kayaking, but I was mistaken. Yeah. Well, John, John at the time was really the standard that everybody in the area measured themselves against. It wasn't until Jamie McEwen uh, got a, got a berth in the 72 Olympics that he was really, he was really surpassed, mm-hmm. but uh, John, you know, really had a tremendous influence on the sport. But I think basically all of us started in aluminum canoes, mm-hmm. and so a kayak really felt weird. But having but that single... extra blade was something that you guys didn't want to tangle with, right? You just wanted to also run. the also the kneeling position. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels a lot more comfortable. Now that's that sounds odd because I think, you know, nowadays the kayaks are so readily available and the out, outfitting is so good that mm-hmm. people are naturally drawn to them. And now we're an endangered species. But uh, you know, back then I'd say probably eight or nine out of ten were 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 uh, were canoeists, and uh, you know, most most women paddled kayak, but. Uh, there were definitely a few a few men who, who at Penn State who were good, and of course, Dartmouth College had a whole raft of of people of kayakers. They were taught by Jay Evans, who was a great coach at Dartmouth for many years, and they had you know you'd go to a you'd go to a race, and there would be 
eight or ten of these Dartmouth guys, mm-hmm. one right, one right after the one right after the other. But the only canoeists that ever came, well, two canoeists came out of there: John Burton and Wick Walker. And do you think if you had it over, you know, as a second to do it over again at that moment, that you would have thought about switching over to kayaking? Now that you know, or you think absolutely. you would still go in the same direction? Or well, the thing is, back then the boats really didn't fit big people well. Mm-hmm. The cockpits were much smaller. Lower compressed. And it was a really tight squeeze. Mm-hmm. And, I rem- and I remember years ago talking to Jimmy Snyder, who was building squirt boats, and suggesting that he build a bigger cockpit because there'd been some fatalities. And he said, oh, no, you can't keep a bigger cockpit dry. But then Kenny Sanders, who was a big guy, um, you know, probably about 5'10", but he must have weighed close to 260, 270. Mm. And he he had been a motorcycle racer before he injured his leg, and that's what got him into kayaking. Mm-hmm. And, and Kenny, you know, couldn't fit into the squirt boats that Jimmy and Jeffrey and uh, Jesse and Johnny Regan were paddling, so he made his own and with a bigger cockpit. And the bigger cockpit worked. And of course, the playboats you see nowadays—they're what they really are—is detuned squirt boats, mm-hmm. with a little more volume and smaller. Well, a squirt boat—you know—it depends because there were a lot of squirt boats back in the early squirt days, like like uh, 1990, early 1990s, late 80s, which were not full-on sinkers. That came later. They were mostly boats that you could stern and. You could stern and bow squirt on. You could do cartwheels. Mm-hmm. And, but mystery moves didn't happen very often. The real squirt boat where they were just getting them vertical and doing pillow rides yeah. around rocks and things like that. Well, you know, the first squirt boats, you know, that Jesse Whittemore put together, they were, they were long. Mm-hmm. They were fast. And you could do these wicked pirouette turns. Mm-hmm. And... Jess and Jess was inspired by John Lugbill and Davy Hearn and those guys who were the ones who really developed the stern, the stern pivot turn. Mm-hmm. They were doing indoor pool sessions. You know, I use the term pool loosely because they were in the David Taylor model basin, which is a huge indoor pool on, outside of Washington that they used to test mock-ups of naval ships and so they set up a slalom course in there and you know they had a lot of time and one and i guess at one point they leaned back to do a turn and they got a pivot turn and so that looked pretty cool so they're all doing pivot turns and then they came out here all the all those guys you know i think uh john lugbill especially but a number of those guys worked for river sport and so they'd go to the upper yacht and hang out with the upper yacht guys, you know, Jesse and Johnny Regan and, uh, and, and, and Roger. I mean, it was a very intense and competitive and interesting time. I never got into squirting. I have enough trouble staying on the surface. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I don't want to pass over some of the things that you were uh, alluding to earlier with John Sweet. And in the 70s, I'd like to go back to that a little bit because I think that um, you had gone on the upper gully in the 70s. 
My first run was it was in it was in 1971. Now you figure the first the first descent modern descent of the upper of the Gauley was in 1968. Mm-hmm. It had been run, I think, 64 by Sarah Rodman. There were a group of people from Pittsburgh who were rafting in military surplus boats. Wow. And I didn't know Sayer. I met him once, but he was he, he was not he was he was ill. He wasn't doing very well. But I'll tell you what, I've heard stories about him. He was he was a real fearless explorer. That, that run that they finished, that was, I think, their second or third try. They came one time and just got blown off by high water. And they were smart enough to know that they needed to get off. That's good. John Barry made a try at it because, of course, every everybody was talking to each other. And John Barry went down there and tried to, tried to do it. And uh, this would probably be about... 66 or 67 and, and where was caught. the where was the put in and the takeout in 66 or 67 they were putting in and putting in on a bridge just outside of Somersville and running the section that's now under the lake gotcha and okay. then and Barry got caught as they were running that upper section and they actually carried their boats out at the dam site because they looked at it and said, you know, the water's coming up and I'm not sure where we can get out below here mm-hmm. because we didn't know anything about the road system or anything. And then, in, and then what happened, what happened, what happened next was, was John Sweet had, this was on his radar and he was down with a bunch of people for, uh, to run the new river and he saw there's about 1500 cfs in the golly and he got a group up there and it was norman and jimmy holcomb and uh and and john and uh and and jack wright and uh, jim stewart and then there was a fellow miha tomshack who was a who was a graduate student at penn state who was who was from what was then czechoslovakia and they did the whole thing in one day because they didn't know where any other places were to get in and out. And they were, you know, they were athletes. They were wicked fit. Mm-hmm. But you think about it, running 26 miles of the Gauley <laughs> at uh, 1,500 CFS, that is a long goddamn day. Yeah, that's a long day. There's some, uh, there's some scraping going on, but there's some big stuff. Oh, man, lots of undercuts. Wow, that is a long day. What a scary trip there. Yeah, well, you know, they were, they were, you know, mostly top flight slalom racers. Mm-hmm. Jim Stewart got so fired up about it that he led trips down to the to the to the Gauley for Canoe Cruises Association in '69 and '70. Um, Barb Brown went on a trip with a couple of friends, and that's where she lost her paddle at mm-hmm. Lost Paddle. Mm-hmm. And so then in 71, that was the third club trip. And nobody else was there except John Dragon, who was running a small raft trip. Mm -hmm. And then you were on the river that day? Yep. Um, Pete, you know, Ed Gertler and and Barb Brown were uh, were the trip leaders. We had about 15 people or so. 
Nice. And do you remember kind of the the day and the conditions or water level or anything like that? It was it was twenty five hundred and uh, nice. it was overcast and cool, but not super cold. Oh, the dam was there by this point. Oh yeah, the oh, dam okay, was built. In, the dam was built in sixty eight, and that's got it. Because before they were trying to catch the catch the water, and of course there were no interstate highways, got there it. were no online gauges yeah and and so there was it was really hard to catch up but once the dam came in you could get a reading Mm -hmm. on the water and that and that that made it a lot easier nice what did you think of it what did you think of the upper gully your first time oh it was huge you know i i didn't have that much experience i met met ed gertler at the uh, fall savage race and he asked me to run team with him because one of the guys hadn't shown up. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the team race, he asked me if I was going to the Gauley. And I said, I'm really interested, but you know, I don't know if I'm ready for it. And Ed said, anybody who can get through a Savage River slalom course and not make a complete fool out of themselves can handle the Gauley. And so I ended up going down there with Al Jenkins. And it was a long drive. I mean, it took eight hours from DC and yeah. drove down there after work arrived at three o'clock in the morning and five o'clock the sirens are going off not the sirens the horn and mm-hmm. uh, the water's coming up and people are starting to move and of course with a group that large you know we needed the time mm-hmm. and they drove down to it was a peter's creek takeout you essentially took out mm-hmm. at the at the bridge yep. and walked a couple of miles up the tracks to the river right river right river right yeah and there was a clearing there where sort of a you know really grubby muddy clearing it was sort of like you know jenkinsburg 20 years ago Mm -hmm. except it wasn't as torn up as jayberg was nice but uh then and i swam pillow rock and i swam uh i swam mash what happened at pillow coming in that made you swim I, t- I tipped over and I was halfway up a roll and came up against the Volkswagen rock and the boat went to one side of the rock and I was trying to get my leg out of the boat and sort of drag me over the top of the rock and then push me right down to the bottom <laughs> of the river. Yeah, that's a tough swim. Man, that's a, that's a tough eddy line right there. It was a bit of a manhandling. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry to laugh, but I, I, I'm only laughing because I can picture the forces of water and nature right there. Most of us have had a, have had an intimate relationship with pillow at one time or another. Yeah, absolutely. What was the other one that you swam that day? Mash on the lower. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Man, I had a, I had a big day at mash at 24,000 CFS. That's a lot of water. It was a lot of water and mash just, I was frightened that whole time, but mash was. Yeah. Scary. Cause you gotta get it. Cause you get, you get through the top part. You gotta get away from the left-hand side. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was scary. I ran it at about 16,000 with some people and it was with a couple of guys who were, they were just off in their own little world. And so, and I don't know where to go. So, but there was a raft trip up on the river. So I'd paddle up to the guides and say, anything I should know about this rapid? And they'd wow. say something like, yeah, stay the hell away from the left side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's action over there. 
Oh, man. Well, that's great. So, you know, you had big moments on the Gully. Were there, was that like the top of the river scene uh, back then in the 70s, or was there even bigger stuff? Or Gully and Upper Yacht were pretty much the edge of it. I mean, you know, you, you know, people who ran the Watauga said the Watauga was a bit harder than the Upper Yacht. And there were various other things that were being done. What was one of but, your favorites at the time right there in the 70s? Well, the Gauley was was a favorite for Gauley many, was many it. years. Gotcha. Yeah. I agree. The Gauley's an amazing river. It's a toss-up between the Gauley and the Yawk. Uh, those are rivers that I've worked on for a lot of years and rivers that I truly love a, a lot. They're amazing. Well, that was a really great uh, trip down there. I want to kind of uh, talk to you about um, wild water designs. You were uh, mentioning that, you know, back then you had to build a bigger cockpit and get, you know, augment the boat so you can get in it. And that's kind of what I was talking about when I was asking you what kind of kid were you. You know, I feel like when I was a kid, I was always inventing stuff and I, I'm an inventor now. I'm always like tinkering and I make what I need, you know, and well, it seems like you're that I wish kind I of could, person too. I wish I could say I was that way, but, uh, you know, maybe a little bit here and there, but not really. But the whole sport back then was building stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you'd be on the water and almost everything you had was either something you built yourself or you bought it from somebody who, who built it, who built it. Uh, for you and you know these were these were small companies mm -hmm. after graduating college i'd wanted to be a, a school teacher and i taught junior high school for a year and i found i hated it <laughs> um it just teaching's tough teaching is it hard. is extraordinarily tough and mm -hmm. i spent a good bit of time with a couple of teachers who I really respected and with a guidance counselor and, you know, tried to get advice from the vice principal who was, you know, and all these folks were useful, but I found it to be an astoundingly lonely profession. Even though you're in a room full of kids, they're not your peers, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't get to work on a project with a bunch of adults. Mm -hmm. And of course, junior high is a tough age anyway, mm -hmm. but, I was really bummed out about it. Didn't renew my contract. Uh, had my last year as a camp counselor, and then came then came back then came back. Um, my parents my parents had a uh, had a an old farmhouse that they that we used in the summers, and I just sort of set up sort of set up housekeeping there and. I think my dad wasn't too sure it was a good idea until we had a huge storm go through and a bunch of trees fell down. And, you know, I, I loved working in the woods and, you know, he, he came down, you know, fearing the worst. And I had all the trees cut up. I had everything opened up. I'd called the electric company. And so we figured, eh, you know, maybe it's okay if he stays here. My boy can handle himself. He's okay. He can stay. Well, that's good. Your dad was a smart guy letting you stay because it, it, it created some good things. So that's where you started Wild Water Designs? Yeah. And I started with a life jacket kit that uh, had more buoyancy than what we were using because I, I'd spent way too much time underwater on the Gauley. 
-hmm. And that became the high float life jacket, which later was made by Extra Sport. And Norm Holcomb had showed me a design for a spray skirt, which I modified a bit, but it was much easier to put together than what people, other people were doing. It just, it needed some tweaking and uh, I got the, got the design working. And then there was a paddle jacket kit and uh, wetsuit kits. And and was this all like tie it together or were there clips or, I mean, like what was some of well, the well, makeup? Well, you sew, you sew the life jacket. Yeah. I provided the foam and the cutout pieces okay. and the instructions, of course. And the spray skirt was neoprene. You glued together. Same with the, uh, same with the wetsuit. <laughs> wow. That's great. And, you know, people bought the stuff and one or two times I, I would get somebody who would call up and complain about my instructions. And there was this one woman, her name was Cindy, was Cindy Wheeling. And she just called up and gave me a hard time. And I said, you sound like what you're doing. I'll refund your money if you'll write it all down for me. And she did. And it was very helpful. And of course, you know, the sport was, you know, the business was just so small that, I mean, really nobody, to give you an idea of how far back this was, Type three life jackets weren't even available until 1973. And I'm starting the the business in in, uh, fall of 72. And it took a while for them to get there. And most boaters were, uh, had time, but they didn't have much money. So, and they were used to making stuff. Mm -hmm. So you were just providing a kit, not a a ready-made BFD. Right. Because when I, when I, for instance, if I want to make a spray skirt in Washington, because nobody sold a spray skirt, mm-hmm. what I, what we did what we ended up doing, I remember I, I was taught how to make a spray skirt by a guy named Frank Birdsong. And I, and he gave me some neoprene to work with. And I said, what do I owe you? And he said, I don't want your money. I want you to replace this neoprene. And what, what it meant doing was that there were several guys in DC who ordered in neoprene and I called around, found somebody who had it and drove over and picked it up. And if you want to make another skirt, which I did at one point, you know, you go to a dive shop and you get the, uh, and you get the wetsuit glue. And I ordered the shock cord in from a camping supply company. And so I thought, why not put all this stuff together? Yeah. Make it so it's ready to go. And that worked, that worked for a while. And then in the, uh, in, in the late seventies, women entered the workforce in huge numbers. And all of a sudden, most paddlers lost their sewing fabricator. Oh, <laughs> because, because, because the ladies came home and they were tired too. And I mean, yeah. It seems odd now, but when I graduated, when I graduated from college, a lot of the women I knew who were married, they do a part-time gig of some sort, but they were just sort of hanging out and keeping house. And that changed overnight. And the big thing that changed was there was a ruling that said that banks had to consider the income of both the man and the woman in figuring out what mortgage you could afford. 
And of course, you know, that kicked real estate prices up hugely. But yeah. bottom, the bottom line was that all of a sudden, people had more money in less time, and the sport was growing. And so there was a lot, <clears throat> you know, there were, there were people who were building things. Mm -hmm. And I started to lose ground. And by the, uh, by the early 80s, I was still selling kits, but the numbers were just sort of going away slowly dwindling you know, I, you know i used to sell like over 100 kits a month in the busy in the busy part of the year 100 uh 100 spacer kits a month and by the end i was selling maybe a dozen mm. so it was it changed people mm -hmm. people wanted stuff that was ready made ready made hell i'm lazy i probably I, uh, I don't make much stuff for myself anymore yeah what about the throw bag? Did you invent the throw bag? That's a cool story. The throw bag was originally developed by the U.S. Navy. It was it was standard equipment on lifeboats during World War II, and I suspect has a has a marine history that goes way way prior to that. And so, at some point, I'm I'm by this time with ACA on the instruction committee, we're trying to develop canoeing and kayak programs for the Red Cross. And we were working with Ray Miller, who was- What was the, the year period, the time, time? Oh, this is probably 76, 77, something okay. like that. And, you know, I would have to go and have to go and dig around and look at my catalogs. And so Ray Miller sends me this printout of essentially it's plans for a rescue bag just sort of shows it and talks about it it's a copy of an of an article from 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 some kind from, from some magazine and he said you gotta try this it's amazing mm -hmm. and i said yeah right because you know i had done some guiding by this time and you know, Ohio pile guides didn't screw around with ropes very much. If someone was in trouble, they dove into the water and yeah. and, to, and, to, and took care of and took care of business. Yep. And you know, I don't I don't think they really worked on rope techniques for for quite some time. But they were very good at that. And I really, partly it was you know I had that I had that behind me, and I also had had the uh, had the racer's attitude that you know you stay out of trouble by keeping your boat under control and if you're out of control that's a bad thing mm -hmm. and then if you get into trouble let's not just talk about it let's just go in there and fix it <laughs> go in there and take care of it yeah get it this done is, quickly you gotta you gotta understand that the first rescue classes didn't happen until the mid 80s mm -hmm. so and you know the definition of a safety nut in the 70s was someone who carried a rope in their boat and i did carry a rope in my boat it was 70 feet it was 70 feet long it was a it was a just a throw line no bag it was what they call a bull rope in ohio pile mm -hmm. and and that was but you know to get that rope out and to throw it out and work the kinks out it was not something you'd use fast mm -hmm. so i get this get this thing from ray miller and I'm saying, oh, this sounds like a gimmick to me. 
but I went and got a stuff bag out of my backpacking gear and cut a, and I had ethafoam because we sold ethafoam. I cut a piece of ethafoam and I had some rope and I stuffed it in there and took it out to the front to the front steps and threw the rope out and it was like holy smokes. Aha moment. And so I pulled it in and did it again. It's like this is amazing. And so I didn't invent it, but I did two things. One is I kind of tuned it up for, for, for paddlers, you know, got the dimensions of the bag so that it was useful mm-hmm. and uh, put, a, uh, <clears throat> put, a, put a press lock on the drawstring and figured some way to tie it into the boat. And I also wrote about it in Canoe Magazine and got it a lot got it a lot of attention and back then you did something like that you know you'd have that idea for about a year now if you come up with something neat it'll be pirated oh yeah you know very quickly nrs you know bought my bags for many years and then they decided they should be making it themselves Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of that a lot of that going on and i held it i I had the business for a long time because everybody was trying to undercut me, you know, cheaper rope, Mm -hmm. cheaper bags. And so there was a lot of stuff on the market that was just terrible. And I had the, I had the, uh, the, the, the bags made up by uh, first I sewed them for a while, but I didn't really want to be sewing sewing bags until I went cross-eyed. And I, there was a contractor who I knew about in in New Hampshire, Log House Designs, and I uh, I started what was the what was a very long and uh, relationship with a very nice guy. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so that aha moment of the throw bag there really kind of perpetuated your um, interest into the Swiftwater Rescue or, you know, how did that bridge happen? Well, I started getting interested in safety and it was the fall of 1975. We were at the uh, Icebreaker Slalom on Unadilla, New York. It's a little creek with some class one and two rapids right below at a Corps of Engineers dam nice little race and it was the last race of the year usually it was the first or second weekend in October and it was just great to see everybody and have one la- one last hurrah before we put before we put things away for the winter because when you race and I raced pretty seriously for oh probably six seven years you know, you go to one river, then the other river, and the other river, all the same people were there. Mm-hmm. You know, you if you went further north, you'd get a slightly different crowd. If you went south, you'd get a different crowd. But we all knew each other. And so it was really fun to get together at, at Unadilla. And I was on the course, and i just come out of a gate. And it was like, this is a practice run. It's like, something is wrong up there. You can just tell by the way the people were moving, something was wrong. And so I, and there were ropes in the water. And so I, I, I pulled over and went down and the guy said, you know, try to stop people from coming down. We've got a real problem. And he pointed and there was this yellow blur underneath the water. Now, 
we didn't know what the hell was going on there. He was stuck there. And there were guys who were Ohio Pile Raft Guides and who I considered the, the best rescuers that I knew of. And several of them jumped into the water and tried to grab him as, he sw as they swam past. And there were also people doing things with ropes. And a bunch of us got into the water and just tried to dam the water and divert the water away. But every time we started to divert the water, it started pushing us away. And so that wasn't working. And finally, they shut the water off at the dam and got the guy out. And I, I was really upset by that. And I, wanted to, and I wanted to talk about it. And nobody else wanted to talk about it. And it was, uh, you know, I was really surprised. And OK Goodwin, who was the American Whitewater Affiliation Safety Chair, said it was a freak accident. And there was a fellow who lived in Chicago who had come east for it. I think he was taking a job further east. but. I can't remember his name, but he was the he was ACA safety chairman, and he agreed with King that this was just a weird thing and that we shouldn't worry about it. But I started talking to people, and I, I, I in talking to people, I found there had been a couple of similar accidents in the South, one on the Obed River, and. It wasn't like I was doing heavy duty research, you know, paddlers mm -hmm. like to talk and I like to talk more than most. Yeah. Talking it and, you know, crossing it off is just a weird thing. It's pretty ambiguous there. And I ended up writing an article about it for, Amer for American Whitewater. And then about six months later, Chuck Tummins, who was the, uh, who was the Commodore of ACA asked me if I wanted to be ACA safety chair. And we ended up, you know, doing a lot of work with Coast Guard, essentially talking them out of putting a lot of stupid regulations in and giving them education, not regulation. Thank you. And, but, you know, the Coasties came from big boats and big boats, it's all about equipment, but in small boats, it's all about skill mm -hmm. and it's all about knowing when you want to be in the boat and when you don't want to be in the boat and that was a little radical and they they did a study where they where they said that this study proved that what we needed to do was to put two inches of foam flotation along eight feet of all open canoes and the coasties were thinking and we probably need to do this for kayaks too for level flotation and we ended up going to the Coast Guard offices and, and studying several years worth of accidents. And our, our results did not match their, uh, their contractors' results. And what became really obvious is that their contractor said that 10% of all fatalities could be prevented. Well, we found one accident that it might've helped. Cause it's somebody who's out in the water for a long time, really needed a platform to hold on to. And there aren't a lot of canoeing accidents like that. And, and so what, we, but there are usually about nine or 10% of the accidents you're unable to determine the cause. 
an upside down boat is found or somebody is missing, a search is made, done, a body comes up, but you can't say, aha, that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. Except probably they weren't wearing a life jacket, but that was really common back then. And so we were pretty sure that what this contractor did is the Coast Guard told them what results they wanted. And he just took all of these unable to determine cause and said, well, they would have been they would, have, they would have been prevented if they'd had level flotation. Mm-hmm. And the problem is level flotation works really well in, in medium size, small and medium sized power boats, but those boats are six, eight, 10 feet wide. Doesn't work so good in a canoe that's like three, mm-hmm. two to three feet wide. Mm-hmm. But so anyway, I got, invo- got involved with that, but I, we still weren't doing any rescue training. I worked at NOC in 74 and we had an evening where we sort of went over some first aid stuff and a guy demonstrated CPR, but we didn't actually do it. And then we had a, had an afternoon where we practiced carrying people around. And of course, you know, you work for Payson Kennedy, you got an advanced degree in rope throwing. He was an amazing rope thrower. I remember I was sitting on the opposite side of the river one time and something went and just sort of hit me like that. What's going on here? What's going on? And then I see Payson hauling his rope in. Quick draw McGraw, Clint Eastwood over there with the rope. I mean, he was, he was amazing with a bare throw line and just an amazing all around riverman too. But it wasn't until less, less back, because, you know, I'm an Ohio pile guy. And they didn't do sure. a lot of rescue training back then. There's no need. It was the like, you see too, that guy, go tight. swim out there and get him. Yeah. New River, you know, you have to use a rope. You have to be good with a rope. And, of course, the Ohio pile guys knew how to, re, how, how to use a rope, too. Mm-hmm. But you just didn't but, need to. Was, you could get on those rocks and swim down there and grab a person. Yeah. And, but a boat would be upside down. A kayaker would paddle up, hop out on the raft, throw mm-hmm. his kayak on top of the raft, paddle exactly. the rope to shore, screaming at his customers to get the hell over to shore. <laughs> the Armstrong method, absolutely. Well, it was you know, it, you know, it was a very different customer than what we have today. It was mostly young men, mm-hmm. and as as I like to say, they were looking for adventure, and we gave them as much as they could stand. Yeah, they got adventure. Well, is but in the mid in the mid eighties, um, and I'm not sure what year it was. I'd have to look it up. There was a there was a, a pinning death in uh, in Jawbone Rapid on the Chatuga. and I mean this was with NOC, and they had a very strong crew there, and nobody could help them. And so over the winter, Les and Slim started working on techniques. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, you know, Telfer lowers. Yep. You know, we st- they're still used by Les Bechtel and Slim Yeah, mm-hmm. and they did a cl- they did a class, and and I went down and took it, and I said, you know, this is kind of interesting, but based on my I never I never said this to but it was like, based on my experience in Ohio pile, this is bullshit. You know, <laughs> you know, what are you fooling around with these damn ropes for? Just get out there and do it. Get in there already. 
And, and it wasn't until several years later, I got invited to, to speak at a conference out in California in UC Davis. And Rescue 3 was running a, uh, a, a half day program. And they had us swimming in the river and swimming over strainers. And, uh, and they, they had different wading techniques. And it's like, this is more like it. Yeah. This is shit I can use. Yeah. And, and uh, so when I, came, when, I, when I came back, I started, I was living in outside Philly at the time. And I started a class, a one-day class, which I called... Uh, Whitewater self-defense, which was essentially swimming and wading and using throw bags and, mm -hmm. you know, climbing around on rocks, which a lot of people had, had never done. Mm -hmm. and really getting intimate with the river and feeling it. And the sort of thing, the sort of thing you would, you would, you would get if you were, if you were a guide in Ohio. Park. Yeah. River guide. And, you know, if you, if you didn't, if you weren't the sort of person who, who was comfortable in the water and comfortable swimming around, swim out to the boat, unpin the boat, talk the customer down, mm -hmm. uh, get them in the boat, paddle at the shore, even though you got two guests with no paddles, you know, that was, they just seemed a lot more practical. So I was teaching this class and a lot of the people said that it gave them a lot of confidence. Now me, I had swum often enough in my career so that I knew that I could, take care of myself in the water but even for me it was really helpful mm -hmm. and and then i you know was teaching this class and one of the guys who came to the class was wayne sunmacher yeah and wayne came from a uh he had he had done a number of things which required rope work and he was really interested in it and he taught me about ropes <laughs> I taught him about being a about about being an in water river guy. Nice. And we both learned a lot from each other. And out of it came the Whitewater Rescue Manual in nineteen. The Whitewater Rescue Manual and the ACA Swiftwater Rescue Course. Mm -hmm. um, Wayne and I put it together. We taught it. We taught it a number of times, and the ACA didn't know quite what to do with us. But uh, Merle Jarvis was Commodore, and he had told me he thought we needed a rescue class, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to do it myself, but Wayne agreed that we would do it together. And so I'm going to these endless freaking meetings, <laughs> and finally thought I had the go-ahead, and I had... And I had set up a, I had set up a class in California, and Wayne had set one up in... Uh, an instructor class in California. Wayne had set one up in Colorado, and I was and I got a I got a call from the uh, head of the instruction committee, who shall remain nameless, who said, "I don't know if we're ready to let you do this yet." Wow! And it's like I bought my freaking airline. Tickets. I'm doing it, dude. <laughs> These guys, you know, all three of them were professional guides who were taking time off to do this. Yikes! And I just said, said to him, you know, this is really going to, going to piss some people off, but here's the deal. If not now, when, and if not me, who? Yeah. And he backed off and, you know, Wayne and I taught 
a lot of courses in different parts of the country. And of course, now there's tremendous talent out there. Yeah. I, I mean, it's there, but there are people, there are people who, you know, can out teach and out rescue me by a long shot. Yeah. But I, you know, that book came out in 1995, right? Yep. I think I got it in 95 because I became a river guide in 96 and you know I I read that book from cover to cover a lot and it really gave me clarity and uh an understanding um you know approach to being a river guide and then what people were teaching me just kind of reinforced all that and that that was something that really was you could read it you could learn it you could go practice it so that that book that was an important book. That, I'm know. glad it was helpful. It's out of print now. Well, thank you for writing it because I think a lot of people really felt that that book was important. I know I did, and um, that was a good one. But yeah, well, you're Wayne, right. A lot of people. Wayne and I split good. it up, and most of the most of the heavy duty rope stuff that was Wayne, mm -hmm. and uh, you know a lot of the other the all the a lot of the other stuff was mine. Where do you, where do you see us? Like, I really feel like so far to rescue, like we didn't have it. And then we have it, you know, we had it in the nineties um, and it got everyone really smart, really better. And the whitewater world uh, progressed very quickly. Where do you think the future of the Swiftwater rescue is going on this same, you know, upward, uh, path or is it plateaued or is it going back down or what do you think? I'm not sure. You know, the course, the course now is pretty good. You know, a lot of the guys who are teaching now are really into these cinches. I don't teach them in my classes because I don't teach advanced with water rescue. I teach the regular two day course and it's, you know, you, I, it takes a lot of teamwork to do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So if it was the sort of thing where you were training a group of guides or a group of people you boated with, that would work. But mm -hmm. for most people, I got other things I want to show them, things mm -hmm. which I think are more important. And the other thing is that as I've gotten older, the pace of the class has slowed. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I really wore people out when I was younger. And now I think I, I think the, I think the pace is much slower and I'm not trying to cram every single thing in. I'm trying mm -hmm. to make sure that what they get is, is, is things that they'll learn and that and uh, will be helpful to them rather than just rushing through it to say you have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that, um, I've been lucky to teach Swiftwater Rescue classes with you as your second instructor. And it's been awesome, just just on a personal note, to be able to read that book in 95, 96, uh, and then, you know, go through my whitewater career, which is small. Uh, but to, to be able to teach with you, uh, that was really, really great. So I just want to say thank you for let me teach with you and, and be there with you. That was a, a great moment in my life. I really appreciate that a lot. Well, it was, uh, it was great to have you. Thanks. You know, good, good assistance, sir. Or, you know, really, really make your li life a lot easier. And, uh, you know, you've always, you've always been one of those that I enjoy working with. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much. So you, you've gotten so many awards and you've been involved in so many things and you've written so much. It, it's, it's incredible the amount that you've contributed to um, the whitewater industry. What do you think is like um, one of the things that you're most proud of that you've been able to accomplish or an award you've gotten or just something you've done that you're, you're well, just proud of to, to have out there. Anything? Well, you know, the, the, the awards are, the awards are very nice and I'd be, you know, I'd be lying to say that I, <clears throat> that I didn't love the rec recognition because of course I do, but you know, that's not what you do it for. Right. And certainly, you know, what I, what I've been, uh, what I've been focusing on in recent years, I've stepped back a bit from, from, from hard, from hardcore swift water instruction. I still teach it, but the ACA instruction committee is, is, and the rescue committee, they're doing good stuff, but it's, I'm much more, I'm just much more someone who comes from an era where we figured stuff out as we went along. And, uh, I'm quite happy to let the other people develop the course for the, take the course to the next level. And so I've been, I've been working on, uh, access and conservation issues right around here with friends of cheat mm -hmm. and uh also also on the upper yacht and mm -hmm. i can't say that i'm the person who made it happen but a lot of times by by being there you can you can provide helpful support and thanks to social media you can you can raise serious money from from a generous community like our paddling community yes i mean you know, we raised twenty-five thousand dollars for uh, <clears throat> for the uh, put-in at uh, on the upper yacht. Yeah, and that very much changed the relationship with the town because they were always all you know these boaters. They just come in and they leave. They just take. They never give. Mm -hmm. It changed things, and it changed things. And of course, Jess Whittemore was the absolute key guy in that he's the one who really represented paddlers interests in the uh in in the town council for many years he envisioned the parking lot mm -hmm. he and uh it was it did not happen easily because we thought oh what the hell you know we'll just throw a culvert in there and uh and put some gravel down well it's maryland yeah and maryland is keep on sinking is all West Virginia's alter ego. And it was, it was mm -hmm. about 180 grand when the dust settled Then oh. about 50 grand of that was engineering studies. And it's like for a freaking parking lot, oh my. you're out of your mind, yeah, but that that's, insane. that's the way they do it in Maryland. That's why it took two years after we raised the money because they had to raise other money, but the 25 grand that we raised was a strong statement and really mm -hmm. helped get those other grants mm -hmm. that and Jess Winnemore's persistence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when the state wanted to take over the uh, Sang run area, which AW has been managing for years, just mm -hmm. on a donation basis. And all of us, 
all, all of a all of a sudden, you know, you know, they're saying, well, we don't want you here anymore. We're going to have a ranger there charge five dollars a head. Jess Winnemore got on the phone with the director of parks and said, this is Jess Winnemore from Friendsville Town Council. We think this is a terrible idea. And so A.W. got back in. Nice. Thank you, Jess. And, and he, you know, I, I, I went with him one time when he went to uh went to the county commission and he was pounding on the table saying look deep creek lake is not the only thing in maryland yes. you've got to think of you know deep creek lake is pretty much developed you've got to think about the other towns in maryland like friendsville yeah to keep this because really if the lake had its way they just hold the water all the water back we wouldn't have any releases yeah and it's been you know working with jess as you know raising raising money helping to communicate and build support and also to go to town meetings and let them know that american whitewater is interested mm-hmm. that's been cool yeah. and then of course with friends of cheat we you know back in 2006 we cleaned up jenkinsburg and then and then uh we're able to uh buy buy that property at, on the river right bank at rockville Both of those things, Keith Pitzer was the real driving force behind it. Keith had just had the most amazing vision Mm -hmm. and we talked about it and, and we had been talked to Dave Huff who owned mountain streams and trails essentially said, you know, I will give you guys a 25 year access guarantee if you will fix it up. And we fixed it up. And the thing that made it possible was there was close to uh, to, to $15,000 in paddler donations. We had a $15,000 matching state grant, which Keith got through his contacts. Wow. And then up in Rockville, we bought a piece of land and found out it was mostly in the river. It was on the tax. It was on the tax rolls. We didn't pay much, but it's like, I think we have maybe, you know, hundred square feet of property, and we use that property. And there was a piece of land right next to it, which was owned by Chesapeake Energy, and and Chesapeake, of course, got a terrible reputation in the years following. But back then, it was a very community-minded company, and uh, we had. Uh, a fellow named Scott Rotruck, who Keith was very friendly with, and Scott got got uh, the uh, got Chesapeake to donate the land to Friends of Cheat. Wow! Now the next thing that happens is that Allegheny Wood Products comes up to us, and they want to push their access road down the Big Sandy for the lo- for the logging that they did uh, down through a piece of our land and of course that's heartbreaking because we didn't want them in there anyway but they were going in there whether we wanted to or not Mm -hmm. and so basically we gave them a lot of uphill land so they could go not a lot it was you know we're talking about maybe an acre here we got we gave them that in exchange for at least an acre along the river and so that you know that increase that increased the size of the area area and i think probably about 
half the parking lot is is with that mm -hmm. and they also were helpful to us in terms of uh, getting the ground leveled out mm -hmm. so you know as i said keith had keith pitzer had the most amazing vision and again with i was able to reach out to the paddling community through social media and you know, there are a lot of problems with social media, but it is a killer small fundraising mm -hmm. thing because there are a lot of people who would like to help out, mm -hmm. but they're not going to move out here and start screwing around with this stuff. But if, but they will very likely, very likely chip in some, chip in some money. And we've been doing that to keep the access roads open. Mm -hmm. You know, I know the state should be doing it, but chimney, you know, they're not. They're not going the, to. They don't the need it. Well, the big problem is that the state of West Virginia, and I found this out the first time I went and saw the the local highways highways manager. The state of West Virginia changed their formula for maintaining roads, and everybody knew that it was going to be severely underfunding. And now it's like, oh my gosh, we have a roads crisis. It's like bullshit. You knew this roads crisis was going to happen, but you were much more interested in giving tax breaks to coal companies mm -hmm. than in maintaining the roads that we use. And so that it meant that these roads, which got very little attention, were getting none. And the ATVers were tearing it up in some ways. And so we just had to, if we didn't fix it, it was going to be a four-wheel drive road and you know i can do it i've got a, i've got four-wheel drive but that would really reduce access and so we've raised i think over the years between both of the access areas and uh, all of the all of the all of the uh, road work you know probably about 160 170 thousand dollars but of course that's been since 2005, 2006. So we sort of do a little bit every year. Mm -hmm. Well, you had mentioned some, some pretty big stuff, and that's the ability for paddlers to get together on social media and to, you know, crowdfund, um, you know, access. So going forward with our future, I feel like that that is one of the really important things that we've all got to unite and... Uh, have a big takeaway from is getting this uh, access really nailed down even more because it seems like it's kind of being taken away by our government. Do you feel those things or do you feel well, like I don't know if it's being taken away by the government. It's more like there are places that we depend on mm -hmm. that are private property. Okay. I mean, Rockville at one time was a, was a logging town. And then the logging went away. The, uh, the little logging railroad grew up and everybody moved away except for, except, for, except for Rosie Hawthorne who lived down there for a number of years, but she was, she was just sort of an eccentric hermit. And so we were, you know, putting it in the river in places which were essentially people's yards. Right. And but the land is owned by somebody and eventually somebody will develop it. And the same, you know, I, you know, 
we're working on some things that I can't talk about right now, but uh, trying to nail down some of, some of these accesses because I, I want people to have the same experience that I had. Mm-hmm. So you've created a lot of really educated self-water rescue experts out there. Is it well, now? A number of people went through my class, but I didn't create. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that you, uh, you enabled them to be more educated in self-water rescue. My question is now, you know, you've got the self-water rescue element covered. Are you moving on to trying to create the next group of, um, conservative-minded, conservation-minded paddlers to try to get out there? You know, and... you, you, know you, certainly try, you certainly try, but I think paddlers are conservation-minded anyway. Okay. I th- and, you know, one of the things that you got to remember is that they did a, there was a study done years ago that said the average paddling career is about seven years long. And it's because people, there's something they do for a while after they get out of college before they get married or maybe after a divorce mm-hmm. or or maybe or maybe when they're retired but there are a number of people who've been at it for a long time like me mm-hmm. and you talk to the people who have been at it a long time they're pretty well, they're pretty well oriented and what we what we try to do is to share our ideas with people the main thing i try to get across to people is access doesn't just happen mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, with this coronavirus stuff, you know, there was some really dumb social media posts where people were, where people on the Upper Yacht page were arguing with a couple of town residents. And, you know, everybody's scared. And places are being shut down all over the place. It's not unique. And if I were if I were wanting to sneak on the river, the last thing I would be doing is talk, talking about it in social media. Yeah. And if I'm concerned about the relationship with the town, I would not be engaging residents in in uh, you know rough social media dialogues. But I think just generally, one of the things that happens with a lot of people, and I've seen this. In, after accidents is people write stuff on social media that they would never say to your face. Yeah. And, and you're a whole different person when you're typing behind your keyboard. Well, I'm not because, but the thing is I wrote, I wrote magazine articles for yeah. many, many years. And I, I try to put the same sort of care into it. And also sure. I, uh, you know, years ago, when we were trying to get water releases on the Tohican, I was fortunate to work with Senator Stu Greenleaf, who was in his first term then, and who recently retired after being being you know the senior the senior Republican, and he was one of the key people in uh, in in getting the Lehigh Gorge State Park put in. He was one of the key people in getting the summer releases on the Lehigh. And he was very, very smooth with people. And he didn't say what was on his mind mm-hmm. because he says, don't do it. You might need those people later. Mm-hmm. And I think people say things on social media that you might say to your buddy, but you don't, you don't, you don't say it out in public. What I remind people when they start talking about accidents is, Hey, would you guys cool it? Because you know, 
the guy's relatives are reading this. Yeah. The guy's friends are reading this. And I mean, even I try to be really careful, but occasionally I step on some toes and I've, and I've had to apologize. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you a story about Stu. We've been trying to get water releases on the Tohican for years. This is about 70, 77 was the first release. So this is probably around 76. And the, the folder had been circulating around the Philadelphia Canoe Club and I get the folder. And so I look at the folder and I write a letter to the state and I get a very sort of unfriendly response. And so I write a letter trying to talk about how we can meet their concerns. And I got the same letter back. It wasn't even changed. And so I'm, it's like, we're being stonewalled. Yeah. So I'm at the canoe club, you know, c- complaining to, uh, to, to, to one of the guys. And he says, well, you ought to talk to Stu Greenleaf. He just got elected to the legislature and he's over there. Oh, perfect. And so, and so I walked over and introduced myself and he says, send me a proposal, two pages, no more. And so I sent him a proposal about, you know, what the river was and what we wanted to do and how we were going to, how we thought we could handle parking. <clears throat> and I get a call from Eric Pauly, who was his uh, legislative assistant for many years. He had a couple of questions and I wrote answers. And, co- and, I, and then, you know, I just sort of put it out of my mind. I get this call from Stu. He says, Charlie, we're going to get this water. I, but, you know, they're going to send some uh, D- DCNR people around. And I want you to go around with them just to make sure they don't make anything up. And I said, well, Stu, what'd you do? And he said, well, I went to the chairman of the Appropriations Committee and we put a hold on the state park budget. Wow. And I said, wow, that seems a little extreme. (laughs) And he said, well, he said, we wouldn't we wouldn't stop it forever. But here's the deal. We we let them know that we're in a position to make trouble for them unless they talk to us. And it's a technique that they commonly used to get the attention of agencies that weren't listening. And so I I met these DCNR guys and they're going around to these landowners trying to get them to say that they didn't want releases, but they just, we went to this one guy and he's saying, aren't you concerned that these releases are going to uh, continue the erosion that you've complained to us about on the property? And he said, no, I've told you people, that's not the problem. The problem is that when the dam, the, 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 the dam cuts off the, cuts off the main flow and this little side stream comes in during high water periods, and that's what's tearing it up. You need mm-hmm. to release enough water in the dam so that it goes down straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. And we went, we went to another guy and he, he, said, he said, aren't you, I think these were people who had written letters of complaint of some kind to the DCNR. And he said, aren't you, you know, you, aren't you concerned about the traffic and roads causing problems? He says, no, no, I'm not concerned about the boaters. Here's the problem here. This section, come on over here. Look at this section of the road. It's deteriorating. It's really narrow here. I've talked to you people about it a long time and you guys need to fix the road. He said, uh, we don't fix the road. We're the highway. You're the government. I thought that was what you were here for. <laughs> and 
after a couple of those meetings, they just said, <laughs> and we got our water. And, nice. you know, the releases, you know, depending on, you know, they're a little bit water dependent, but they still happen. And, you know, we've been trying for years, but Stu made it happen. <laughs> nice. Well, let me ask you this. Um, I remember the upper yacht, a rabbit called Charlie's choice. And I, I know you probably said it, you know, a couple times, but how, how did that rapid get its name <coughs> with you? I, I know that, you know, it's Charlie's choice because of you, but what's the real story with it? Well, the incident was, it was the spring of 1972. It was April. And I ran the, I, was, I, I met Dave Demery and, and, I, and his brother, Dan, and I wanted to run the North Branch of the Potomac, but they were really hot to run the Upper Yacht. And I figured, what the hell, you know, I've run the Blackwater, I've, uh, I've I run the Middle Fork of the Tiger, and I think I'm ready to try it. Well, it was three, it was three feet. And I was definitely Whoa. not, I was definitely not ready for three feet. Yeah, few people are. Well, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a crew that runs it. It runs it high now, but oh, I was yeah. definitely not ready. And I've run it at that level. And so I was not having a good day. And I finally get to the the rapid, which was not, which had not yet been named. And I had a miserable run, rolled a couple of times, and I get into the eddy, and I'm shaking so hard I can't put my I pop my skirt. Mm. And I'm shaking so hard I can't put my skirt back on. And it's like, I need to leave. Yeah, good choice. And so I go over to Dave Demery, who I'd been boating with on and off that, that spring, and said, hey, Dave, you know, I don't need to be here. I need to get out of here. And he says, and he says yeah, we'll hike out this side. And I said, you guys don't need to, don't need to leave. And, but, you know, I, you know I, I'll find my way out. And he said, my little brother's just as shaken up as you are. He just hasn't said anything yet. We need to get out of here. Yeah. And so we, we hiked out and I came back later that year and ran it with Jack Wright in the, in the low twos. But so the reason it got named is that Danny Demery, Dave's younger brother, is a really gifted writer and a... Uh, and he wrote a number of articles about the Upper Yacht for, you know, canoeing publications. And one of the things that he that he wrote was that he wrote was the description of the Upper Yacht in the West Virginia, in the in the in the I don't know if it was the first or the second edition of Wildwater West Virginia. Oh wow! But um, and he named the rapids. And, you know, some of the ones like National Falls and uh, Heinzerling had all, and Gap Falls, they already had names, but he made up names for all of them. John Sweet isn't very happy because uh, Meat Cleaver, the original name for that was Bickham's Tree Rapid, which you can sort of imagine what might have happened with Bill and aluminum canoe and a tree. Mm-hmm. John said that the tree was underwater and he, and you could see it for years afterwards. Wow. So Charlie's choice got it from Dan Demery. Or- yeah. So, Dan, so Danny's the one who named it. Nice. That's good. Okay. 
I like it. Well, let me ask you this. Um, what is a, I mean, you're a gifted writer too. You've written a, a lot of stuff. And one book that you uh, let me know about, uh, you've let me know about a handful of books, but one that's always stuck out in my mind was um, the one, uh, Lawrence Gonzalez. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm looking at it here. I can't find it. I'm going. I, I... How did you get quoted by him twice? Uh, oh, I got quoted a bunch in that. Yeah, book. yeah. Well, the thing is, he the whole deep pro- survival, deep survival, deep survival. His question was, why do some people? You know, when when things go really bad, why do some people live and why do some people die? Yeah. And you know, he got a hold of some of the early river safety reports, which were books which covered like three or four years of accident reports. Okay. And ACA published those for a while. And they stopped doing it when when I closed my business because I was really the one marketing it. And I told them who to contact and all, but they have plenty of other things to do and they just couldn't make it work. But uh, he, 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 you know, read these accident reports and used them as examples. And one of the examples, which I think was, which I, which I use in my classes was a, a group of guys, actually a bunch of West Virginia river guides from uh, North American river runners. They were, uh, they were running a river uh, the Illinois River out in Oregon, and the Illy is known for flashing, and it came up really high. But one of the things that tends to happen is you come a long way, you get to the river, and yeah, it's high, but it's not that high. And you talk yourself into stuff that you might not ordinarily do. And he had a couple of examples, and that was one of them. And you know, I can remember a few things not as extreme as what happened to those guys on the Illinois, but where we got on stuff and it's like, Oh, I'm not sure we should have done that. Well, that was a good book. And I highly recommend, you know, anyone listening out there to read that. Cause it kind of just puts it together. Um, you know, so far to rescue and the mindset I'm speaking of so far to rescue and then having the mindset of deep survival or being, being in the moment and just, you know, trying to just be calm and be in the moment and that's a lot of what the deep survival talks about how kids are able to survive better after plane wrecks or something than adults because they just make these quick decisions the adults do and it ends their lives whereas kids are like in the moment and they're just living nature and I don't, I can't really articulate it well, but it's just like being calm and quiet and being in the moment and respect. Well, I think that. the other thing that he talks about is that, you know, that, that you're, that you're, that when things go really bad, you're, uh, you're a miglet of the primitive part of the brain yes. kicks in. Yes. And that's the, that's the fight or flight part. That's, that's the part that, that says, oh shit, oh shit, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. Where you either, dither 
or you, you can't think clearly or whatever. And he said that the, one of the characteristics of the folks who survive is that they are able to keep the amygdala to, to tamp it down. Yes. And, you know, I, I felt this in the few real rescues that I've done looking back on it. And other people have told me that you're sort of dealing with it. And it's like, this is really bad, but it's like, I'll think about that later. <laughs> exactly. And, That's it. Exactly. And the book is the book is really interesting on a, on a lot of levels, but that's but that but that's the most useful part where he talks about how how our physiology can get in our way and what we can do to keep effective. And of course, the thing that the thing that makes you the more most likely to be effective is training. Yes, because because uh, I have a I have a buddy who. I, he and I were out in the woods and I cut myself with a pretty badly with an ax. It was pretty stupid. And he was not doing very well. He was, you know, acting sort of nauseous. And it's like, oh, for crying out loud, Jim, get me a t-shirt and get me an ace bandage and we're going to have to walk out of here. I need stitches. Mm -hmm. Well, a number of years later, you know, he and I are spending some time together. And since then, He's become a physician assistant in Northern Maine. He's one of about 15 physicians assistants supervised by one or two doctors spread out over a fairly wide area. So essentially he's the doctor, you know, he can call and, you know, get somebody, get somebody transferred to a hospital in Portland, but he's the doc. Mm -hmm. And I said, Jim, you remember when I cut myself? He says, yeah, that was really awful. <laughs> and I and, and I said, "How do you manage your job?" And he said, "Well, a big thing then is I didn't know what to do, but now I know what to do. And when somebody comes in, no matter how sick or how badly hurt they are, my mind is going a mile a minute. Check this, check that, do this, do that." Mm -hmm. He says, "Sometimes if it's a really bad case." I'll be, I won't feel good afterwards, but, Training. but it, but when, but when things need to be done mm -hmm. and it's a training and that's why swift water rescue training is useful because yeah. instead of saying, Oh my God, Oh my God, what do we do? Which is what we said up at Unadilla at the icebreaker slalom, mm -hmm. where we just sort of looked at it and said, Oh no, Oh no. What do we do now? It would have been, foot entrapment anybody got a rope yeah you'd start to get proactive well, and you start to you know i think we would have i think we probably now would have, would set up a snag line mm -hmm. and the thing is right now at nowadays the ohio pile guides are really well drilled in snag lines yes they are and i think if it had happened today they would have gotten him out because we had a strong crew there you know there are about six or seven people who were first you know first order first order yak river guides mm -hmm. and nowadays they'd get them out they've had a number of great rescues on the on the yak foot entrapment rescues oh yeah a lot of rescues on the yak but there's a lot of people that go down it to be rescued so that kind of helps i don't think i don't think, think they want to be rescued but no. you're right it, <laughs> They don't want, it's just, there's so many accidents 
not really accidents, but boat flippings and things like that that rescues are enormous. There's a lot. Place. There's a lot going on. There, and, there is. Uh, as uh, we used to say back when I guided for mountain streams, the customers are here for our entertainment. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, try to keep that on the DL right there. Uh, all the river guides do, but uh, there's would, truth to that. <laughs> you would you would get you would get fired for a lot of the things we did. Yeah. But but of course Ralph's Ralph McCarty, my boss's idea of customer service was I have your money and you have my sympathy. <laughs> well, we've we've talked a lot um here and I don't want to hold you up, but I've I've had such a great time. Is there a possibility that you have um, like a river trip that you always circle back to in your mind that is, is out there as one of the best river trips that that you've had, or is there just too many? Or well, there've been you know there are a lot of them over the years. You know that first run, the first run of the Gauley, first run of the Upper Yak. Yeah. You know because the one that one that I finally finished was, you know, was not uh, was not a, was not a particularly easy one. You know, I I ended up. Jack Wright took us took me took me down the left side, and my boat hit that undercut rock in that chute. But fortunately, I was a lot more agile then, and yeah. I jumped out on the rock, and the boat goes under the rock, and it's pinned under a couple of feet of water, and I'm fishing around with my T-grip trying to get the t trying to get the uh, grab loop, and Jack Wright is down in the eddy below saying, come on, come on, come on, I don't have all day. Oh, man. But that, but that was Jack. He was just... Wright's hole. Yeah, well, Wright's hole. And, yeah. you know, he was... He apparently uh, decided that it was a, he decided that he was going to surf it and he got much, he got more fun than he wanted. <laughs> it's sticky in there. And Tommy's hole, Tommy's hole, the story about how, how that got named is Tommy's going through that narrow spot and he broaches end to end. He's upside down and his buddies are running over his boat. Oh, and Tommy was a tough guy and he was trying to Tommy who Tommy McEwen. Oh, okay. Jamie's Jamie's brother. Yes. And, uh, you know, Tommy was a great wrestler. I wrestled him in high school. He kicked my ass. Oh man. Well, he came up two weight classes and my coach wouldn't tell me very much about him. He came up he, two weight classes and whipped you. He whipped me. Whoa. He was, he, you know, it was, you know, I was a, I was a pretty good small high school wrestler. You know, I, you know, I, I run the, won the class B tournament one year and, but, you know, class B was like the feeder for the new England. So I was definitely not a, not a major, not a major force, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but, but Tommy, you know, I got out on the mat and I said, look, Oh, look at that little scrawny kid. Let me see how fast I can pin him. And the next thing I know, oh, I'm geez. checking out the lights and heading for the, heading for the edge of the mat wow. and I picked myself up and said, huh, he got lucky that time, but I'm coming for him. <laughs> and he did the same thing to me again. Oh I was, I was so exhausted at the end of that mat that the coach had to help me to my feet. And when I shook hands with Tommy, he wasn't even breathing hard. I think I was too big for him to pin, but he certainly was in complete control.
Wow. We've had some incredible experiences and some wonderful times. And I'm extremely thankful that you took some time out of your evening to be a guest with us here on Bedtime Stories for Paddlers. Anytime, because, you know, rivers are rivers are really neat. But what's especially neat about rivers is the people you meet there. And when you start talking about about it, you don't talk about, you know, you don't talk about the rivers that much. You talk about the people who are drawn to them and what you're what you're trying to what you're trying to accomplish with them. And the wonderful thing about when I started was we were still trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. There were there weren't all these standards and certifications. You were just out there, you know, trying, you know, giving it your best shot, and it was a lot of fun. It was a wonderful era. Yeah. Well, you did a great job, and you're continuing to do a great job. And I can't wait to see you out there on the river. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Yep. Well, you know, I get it. I can. I'm getting out a couple times a week. So, you want to get wet? Give me a yell. Nice, I will. And thank you so much, Charlie. And you have a wonderful evening, all right, my thank man? Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk with you. Oh, uh, well, we're going to be circling around uh, back to you again. So you uh, you just stay out there for us, all right? You bet. All right, have a great night and sweet dreams, my man. You too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Charlie, for being part of the Bedtime Stories for Paddlers podcast. And thank you to all our listeners out there. It was wonderful to have Charlie Walbridge on the show. I mean, he's the man. He's played a vital role in setting the standards for Swiftwater Rescue and educated so many. That may be one of the many reasons he's in the Whitewater Hall of Fame. He's been an educational force in my Swiftwater Rescue career, and it's also cool to have him as a friend. If you would like to learn more about Charlie, you can visit his website online at charliewalbridge.com. Check out some of his books, or sharing Eddie with him on the river, because that's where he hangs out. I'm hoping that this collection of stories will educate, entertain, and increase our sphere of awareness on the river of life. Thank you, everyone. And until the next Bedtime Stories for Paddlers, sweet dreams.